I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator. Earlier this morning, we recorded an episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 8 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join in the discussion and get questions answered. An audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Thanks, and remember to tune in weekly for a discussion on current cropping and crop management topics. Uh, we welcome you here to the program. These sessions today are brought to you by the University of Minnesota Extension uh, with generous support from uh, Minnesota farm families and also from the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council, as well as the Minnesota Corn Research and Promotion Council uh, with that. My name is Dave Nicolai. I'm a University of Minnesota Extension educator in, in field crops. Uh, we want to welcome our guests uh, this morning, uh, Dr. Tom Peters. Uh, Tom is Extension Sugar Beet Weed Specialist, uh, working with both the University of Minnesota and North Dakota State University. And he's at his office at, at Fargo this morning. And um, Dr. Bob Cook, uh, Extension Entomologist in Soybeans um, at the University of uh, Minnesota as, as well. Not to take any more time, I'm going to uh, start off here and, and turn the program over uh, with, uh, with Tom. And uh, uh, Tom, it's certainly been an interesting year. Uh, we, we had, I think, almost like the month of August um, occurring in the month of May this year. Uh, we we're extremely warm uh, and hot, uh, at least for some of us that are used to a little bit cooler temperatures. <clears throat> and certainly, I think some of that might have confounded weed biology, weed management, um, and, and that type of the thing. And, and I know every Every year we talk about the spread of weeds and, and so forth. But before we get into the, all the herbicide business, let's talk a little bit about some of our, our weed problems that are typically with us every year. And some of them are more challenging in situations with, with an environment like this. And so the two that come to my mind, and you might have others and talk a little bit about that, of course, is, is water hemp and kochia. And, and it doesn't really make any difference whether you're a, a sugar beet uh, grower or not. Um, it affects all of us. So what are what are your observations and in, in looking at that in terms of, of biology and, and some of the problems that we ran into this last year? Yeah, let's, Dave, thank you. And and I, I, it's a privilege and an honor to be on this morning. So let's, let's, one of the first things about biology that I like to think about is when does a weed germinate and emerge? So the textbook says that kochia is one of the first weeds that germinate and emerge in the spring. And it did. We saw a lot of kochia, um, especially in northwest Minnesota, but also in west central Minnesota, right after planting. And I would argue in some of our fields, the kochia was the first thing to germinate. It germinated ahead of the weed, it germinated ahead of the sugar beets. But the other thing that we observed this year about kochia is when it got hot in May and June, it went dormant. So we didn't see as much of the prolonged germination and emergence that we sometimes see. And I attribute that to how warm it got and the increase in soil temperatures. Um, water hemp is a you know a, a little bit of a different story, I think, this year. And I'm going to make a bold statement, Dave. I don't think water hemp was as bad across the state in 2023 as 2022. 
And the reason I say that is, first of all, there's some areas of the state that got good rain right after planting. So the prees worked. The prees were very effective on, on water hemp. And then um, the, the, the rapid growth of our crops, again, attributed to the soil or to the air temperatures, um, we had tremendous early season growth of our crops. And I think that to some degree helped to shield um, away from water hemp germination and emergence. And then also uh, May and June were pretty dry as well in a lot of areas. And especially with water hemp, um, a seed that grows off the surface or one inch deep, um, usually in response to, to rain events um, and temperature fluctuations, I don't think we had the flushes of water hemp that we had in um, other years. Well, I would agree. I mean, certainly I know in some of the places I traverse in central and southern Minnesota, uh, we had really dry conditions. We had moisture early um, to help the crop in that late April, very early May, and then we just turned off the faucet, so to speak, some places for three, four, five, six weeks almost. And, and, yeah. and I think that really did affect you know, the amount of, of water hemp uh, with that. But um, what's your recommendation? Should we be complacent and say, well, you know, there's, you know, we didn't have much of a problem, and so we, we should be good for the rest of the year and the next couple of years, but not really that's the case, is it? No, we, we need to actively manage weeds year round. Um, again, we have to worry about the biology though. And one characteristic, characteristic of pigweed is the seed becomes viable very quickly after flowering. So you only have two weeks. And I want our audience to keep that in mind if you're if you're out there pulling weeds, carry them out of the field because if you throw them on the soil, they're gonna you know they're gonna finish making seed, and you're gonna have to deal with the seed for four to six years. So carry them out. If you're gonna mow them off, um, feel good about mowing, but realize that some of the the seed that's more advanced is gonna make seed, or some of the the water hemp is gonna make seed. Now, uh, Dave, kochia, ragweed, and lamb's quarters are different. Those, those weeds require more of a full season to make viable seed. So going out and mowing those in, in August is perfectly fine. And I think you will reduce the amount of weed seed, weed seed production that you have. So I would encourage our listeners to actively manage all weeds but feel good about managing the, the second batch because that seed isn't viable at this point. I, I know we don't have a tremendous amount of acres of, of small grain but wheat, but are there some things about the, the stubble and that crop coming off and subsequent weed growth in, in those areas that you've seen? Well, um, uh, I, work with, I work with a lot of small grains growers in Northwest Minnesota. And unfortunately we have a lot of weeds this year in our wheat. Uh, and that gets back to the earlier comments I made about kochia coming up as fast as a wheat. So I'm, we're already talking about post-harvest management strategies. And 
whenever we're talking about post-harvest, we've also got to be thinking about what next year's crop is going to be and incorporate those into our decisions. But yes, we absolutely will try to manage uh, um, the, we'll, we'll try to manage weeds that are in our residue. So in so combination, I think you hinted to this, even besides the dry weather, uh, you felt comfortable that where we got some moisture that our pre's did a very good job across the landscape. Yeah, pre's, pre's are always an interesting conversation. So some people sometimes say they didn't do a darn thing. It was a waste of money. And I, I think the performance of pre's is usually attributed to rainfall patterns. And if, if you got rain on your pre's in a timely manner, I think they work very effectively. But here's the thing, Dave. You know, the worst thing about a pre-herbicide is, um, especially in, in 2023, is if you made the application, everything you did was correct, but if, if you didn't get rain, you might have gotten a good rain for, uh, you know, 10 or 14 days after application, but that, that may not have been time-wise adequate where um, water hemp may have germinated and emerged before that. So even though you did eventually get rain, um, the rain came after some of the earlier weeds started to germinate and emerge. So, um, really knowing when that event, that rainfall event occurred in relationship to um, the weed biology is, is really critical to truly evaluate the performance of pre's. Let's just visit a little bit about sugar beets. I know it's very preliminary, you know, obviously in a lot of your observations, but uh, um, a lot of fields that I looked at, at least for the, the Southern men look uh, fairly clean. Some not so much as others, but uh, where they where they made a good attempt, I, I think things uh, work very well. What did you? What are your comments uh, about the sugar beet crop and coming in here for this year? The same. So, um, I learned from Alan Dexter many years ago that plant as early as you can, and the the people, the farmers that were able to plant the last week of April, April 30th, and then the first few days of May, those early planted feeds fields look tremendous. And oh, by the way, they got rain at the end of the week. Yeah. And um, um, that, that really helped the weed control as well. But I think we have a very nice crop out there. And it's not just sugar beets, Dave. I think across the board in my travels, I'm I'm seeing a pretty nice crop or, or crops. But one thing about 2023, um, we're only um, two weeks away from a train wreck. So we're going to need to continue to get rains because we don't have a lot of excess rain or a lot of excess moisture in the profile. Yeah, that's that's for sure. I know that we're down compared to a year ago, probably you know twenty or thirty percent in terms of qualifying as as adequate. So just let's just resummarize this recommendation for this fall. Uh, we indicated that the probably the hardest weed to deal with is water hemp because it's it's going to go so fast between what I call you know if you think of it like the dough stage to physiological maturity of that water hemp seed, that's very quick. 
And um, I know sometimes I get questions from growers as, oh, and they'll say, well, in this crop or if this area, what if I apply a, a growth regulator herbicide or, or, or 2,4-D, will that affect the viability and so forth? And that's, I think that's really problematic. You might have more to, uh, options in, in some of these other weeds, but when it comes to comes to water hemp, uh, you, you can't uh, wait too terribly long. Is that correct? That's ex exactly correct. So I think at this time of the year, and I'm talking about water hemp that's in some of our low growing crops, like like sugar beet or or soybeans, really the only good option we have is electricity or hand pulling. So by electricity, I mean using the weed zapper. Um, one of the things that we've learned about the zapper is we've already experienced the yield loss. That's that we that's that's already there. But one thing the zapper does do is it stops the physiological maturity process in seed. So it'll it'll uh, reduce the amount of water hemp seed that becomes viable and 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 mature as well. So that's one option that we have. The other thing that we can do is manage water hemp after we start taking the crops off, either using a fall herbicide program or possibly using tillage or, or um, other means. So let's think about 2024. Uh, what lessons did we learn about uh, weed control post-emergence uh, in terms of timing, what things worked? What are some things we need to keep in mind for that? Certainly, if we're in a sugar beet rotation, we have a number of years here, but you know we've got to leverage that. But what are some uh, summations that you have observed? Again, I know it's very preliminarily, but uh, um, what are some things we need to keep forward and keep in mind for 2024? Yeah, so a couple of things that I learned. Um, the first one is, is um, sometimes we hear about non-performance where products don't work and i'm going to use an example in sugar beets uh peters i went out and used ultra blazer and it didn't do a thing so you know my knee-jerk reaction is was yeah the water hemp was too big but that's not fair um i think if you see an example like that where you don't feel you got the performance that you needed you might consider saving that seed and sending it into uh, Dr. Serengi or myself to test that seed to determine if there might be a weed resistance challenge going on. So I, I guess I've always viewed weed resistance as somebody else's problem. Um, yeah, we've got widespread resistance with ALS inhibitors and glyphosate, but by and large, the other products all work. I'm starting to doubt that. I'm starting to wonder if weed resistance is becoming more widespread, especially with the auxins, especially with the PPO inhibitors, um, especially with the group 27s. Dave, the other thing that I learned, and I'm reminded all the time that agriculture is a continuous set of activities. Um, that starts with planting and ends with harvest. Well, one of the things that I didn't realize or I failed to realize is how dry it was in 2023. 
and especially in August, September, and October. So we didn't get a lot of breakdown of the 2023 herbicides and then add that to the late spring that we had. Heck, in my, in my front yard in Fargo, I had two feet of snow on the 15th of April. So we didn't get any herbicide breakdown in the spring. The combination of the events in the fall combined with the spring, I think reduced the breakdown of some of the products that we had and that resulted in carryover in some places. So those kinds of lessons and learning about how last year's products can impact um, this year's crop or this year's products and next year's crop, I think is a real important uh, message for our, our listeners. Well, thank you, Tom. I hope you can hang on. We might have a question or two as we go forward. So um, it's, it's a good opportunity, like we said, to get out take care of those uh, field edges, uh, approaches, uh, fence lines, and so forth as we go forward here. Um, and and uh, we want to prevent that weed seed situation with that. So hey, Dave, at, yeah. one, one last message, sure. um, sugar beet pre-harvest will start on Monday. All right. So there'll be a lot of trucks on the road. Everybody be safe out there when you're out on the highways. Sure, sure sign of fall there in, in terms of that. So summer's coming to an end, but but Bob, we're not quite done with this insect situation here. It just keeps, you know, coming up and, and so forth. And, you know, we think, well, the month of July is over. Well, I guess we're all done, but not necessarily when we talk about soybean aphids and other things. Uh, it's weather confounding. Um, I know you've called around a little bit and I was at Farm Fest this last week. Um, a number of growers were talking about that. It's, it's, it's not every field. So what are some uh, words to the wise, so to speak, that you might have a little bit about where we are on soybean aphids and 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 uh, what should we be doing uh, across Minnesota? Yeah, thanks, Dave. Um, in in terms of what we should be doing, we should definitely be scouting our fields. Um, that there's a lot of variability out there. I think a lot of that depends on you know how the rainfall patterns shook out for different parts of the state, areas that got some decent earlier rains. Um, seems like that's where we're seeing a lot more soybean aphids right now, uh, especially in a southwestern Minnesota, central Minnesota, um, you know, even up into, into northwest Minnesota. I spoke with uh, Aaron Lorenz. He has our soybean breeder. He has some trials up in Crookston. He had to get his plots treated for aphids. Um, I was down in Lamberton this week and setting up an insecticide trial. We had well over a thousand aphids per plant. So it's a, it's a pretty big aphid year in some spots, but it's certainly not all areas, not all fields. Um, areas that are a little drier or have continued to be dry um, are still looking at issues with spider mites. And we know those are a very challenging pest under, under dry conditions. So what are some of the quote <laughs> concerns or dangers here of um of pulling the, tr the trigger too early. We know that, you know, aphids um, can develop an opportunity to move from field to field, but um, what's the downside on, on beneficials and, and just kind of need to be, you know, like from an insurance, well, I'll think I'll, because my neighbors do it, I'm going to do it. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you, you bring up a couple of good points, Dave, and I think they, they tie into the biology of this insect. The first is, is the movement. So around this time of year, we often see these soybean aphid populations developing um, wings 
and then they can move to new fields. And when they're moving to new fields, they're often looking for some of the, uh, the later planted fields that are um, not as far along developmentally. So those are gonna be really attractive and not only attractive, but more suitable where the aphid populations can grow faster. Um, that movement is, can be triggered by different things. Can be triggered by the quality of the soybean plant. Maybe there are too many aphids there. And then those aphid mothers can detect that and they'll produce a generation of babies that will develop wings and fly away. Um, so if you have a field that's not necessarily heavily infested now, that can change in a short amount of time when you get these winged aphids migrating into a field and, and reproducing. Um, the other aspect that you mentioned are the uh, natural enemies. So these are predatory insects like lady beetles or these tiny parasitic wasps that um, attack the aphids. They lay their, these wasps lay their eggs inside the aphids. The wasp eggs hatch, and then the wasp larva will feed inside the aphid, killing it. And then the wasp emerges, flies away, starts its life cycle over again. But what they do is they leave behind a uh, what we call an aphid mummy, which are kind of the dried, crusty, puffy remains of the aphid. So the fields we've been sampling around the state, we've got very high levels of parasitism by these parasitic wasps. And it seems like in some areas, these parasitic wasps and the lady beetles might be holding the aphid populations in check. We're reaching maybe 100, 200 aphids per plant, but they're kind of flatlining there. They're not continuing to increase, but there are clearly areas where the aphids are outpacing these natural enemies and skyrocketing to much higher levels. So again, um, you can't just assume that you have no aphids or you have tons of aphids. You got to get out there and scout uh, your fields and, and really get a feel for what's happening in each of those particular fields. We're backing off some of these high temperatures, you know, this week. We're back into the uh, some places up north, 70s, but you're typically in the 80s. That's still pretty prime temperature, is it not? I mean, for uh, aphid survival at this point, at least going forward, it looks the next two weeks. Yeah, a lot of us like to think about it, you know, that the temperatures where we're feeling comfortable outside, you know, in the in the 80s, um, you know, that that's where aphids are doing really well. Once you get up into the you know, mid nineties and higher aphid reproduction starts slowing down. Um, they don't do as well. So it might've been those high temperatures earlier on this summer that were slowing down aphid populations. Um, and now, as you're saying, Dave, we're getting some somewhat cooler weather and this could be really good aphid growing weather. Yeah. So not only are we getting that movement or redistribution of the aphids among fields, but once they get into those fields, you know, the temperatures are, are looking pretty good for them to grow quite rapidly. You know, I've talked with Bruce uh, Potter over the years and so forth, and a lot of uh, things come back to you keep going out there in the field and watching because things can still be a problem all the way up until like R5 with soybeans. Right. Um, any comments there? Yeah, so we recommend scouting and using the threshold of 250 aphids per plant through the R5 growth stage. Um, and in doing so, you know, you're going to protect your yields from, from losses caused by the aphids. But what you're also going to do by scouting regularly and using that threshold is prevent some of the more challenging later season decision making. Um, we know that based on some data from some of my colleagues in Minnesota that, that infestations into early R6 can sometimes cause yield loss if, if they're uh, much larger infestations. 
um, probably above that, you know, well above the uh, typical economic injury level. And that's a really tricky time to try to make a decision to, um, to apply that insecticide. So hopefully if we're scouting, using the threshold before that, we'll um, be, be putting ourselves in a better situation. Well, some of these newer products and, and, and uh, pre-mixes and so forth, that we have to be careful about if you made one application, um, ignoring that field, things can come back and you've already taken out the beneficials. Um, there is such a thing as movement as, as a continuing problem, is there not, um, in terms of some of, these, uh, some of these fields, depending on how they're managed, if they were applied at, you know, much earlier in the season? Yeah, Dave, you know, you can have movement of the aphids and recolonization after an insecticide treatment. But I think um, two things I want to bring up. One is insecticide resistance. Keep in mind that uh, we still have pyrethroid resistant soybean aphids out there. We've documented it now over multiple years, pretty much across, you know, all, all of the soybean growing regions of Minnesota into the neighboring states as well. Um, Manitoba, the Dakotas, Iowa. Um, so keep that in mind, you know, if you're applying a pyrethroid, you want to get out there and scout after those um, applications to make sure the insecticide did what you wanted it to do. Um, you mentioned mixtures, Dave, and, uh, you know, it seems like these mixtures are still working quite well. Even the mixtures that contain a pyrethroid, they're still doing pretty well even though the aphids might be resistant to, to half that product. Right. Um, but one of the challenges I think with the mixtures is if we go in with a mixture on our first aphid application, if we need to come back in for another application against aphids or mites or something else, it um, kind of limits our options, right? Cause you've already gone in with, with two different insecticide groups probably. And we don't really have all that many total insecticide groups available to us. So just keep that in mind as you're thinking about um, kind of your, your arsenal of insecticides and how you might rotate through them? Well, I think that's, you know, oftentimes the case. And, you know, you might mention a little bit about, you know, we can aggravate or flare that spider mite if we don't get rain here in yeah. some places. Now, it sounds like a pretty good chance of some rain um, Thursday night, you know, in into in Friday. And uh, I don't know, you know, over a lot of Minnesota, so that the situations with that, but even quote a normal rain, Bob isn't going to like alleviate and uh, wash off the soybean aphids, is it not? I think we have to make a comment about you know a rainfall doesn't negate the problem here. That's right, Dave. Uh, first, so you, you mentioned aggravating the pest yeah. populations. One thing I want to mention is if if you've got a field that has mites in it, keep in mind what insecticides you're using. Um, a lot of the pyrethroid insecticides could make that problem worse. They can flare the mite populations. So um, if you're targeting spider mites, uh, you know, things like bifenthrin, there are some other miticides, uh, dimethoate. Um, uh, Dave, remind me what the other part of the question was. I got kind of- Well, I mean, distracted. you know, basically that, you know, in terms of monitoring there that it can be a lot of you know variability with you know with the rainfall but that's um, right yeah yeah so what it was going to yeah in, in regards to the to the rainfall yeah. um when those soybean canopies are closed and pretty thick and lush they can provide the aphids 
a pretty good amount of protection there. Right. Um, you know, so if you have a pretty huge storm, you know, at, at right. this time of year with a thick canopy, it might knock the aphids down a little bit, but I, I wouldn't necessarily count on it. I think you'd want to get back out there and scout again. I think of that kind of weather impact a little earlier in the season when the canopies are more open, you get the hard driving rain and some winds. I think uh, Ian McRae has shown that that can knock the aphid populations back some. Um, in terms of spider mites, um, I also would not count on, you know, a decent rainfall necessarily knocking their populations back. I think what the more important factor is there is, um, you know, a good period of time with high humidities to favor the fungal diseases that knock down the mite populations, not necessarily one or two rainfalls. Right, right. And I know even in the in the area in the eastern part of here, they're only talking about a quarter inch of rain possibly a Thursday night. So really uh, very, very negligible. But just last thing on the soybean aphids, keep in mind that you mentioned some areas of western Minnesota that were heavier with, with aphid populations. But you know, more here on the on the eastern side of the state, we haven't seen that as much. Now they're picking up maybe in the southeast, but we had a lot of variability. We had soybeans that were planted um, and sat in the soil for three, four, five, or six weeks before emergence. So even the soybean crop, it was up and down, up and down, and we were dry. But um, interesting to see how that comes out. But the bottom line is um, we haven't seen the pressure. So uh, you can't always pr uh, paint with a broad brush. Right. And I think that's certainly uh, you know been been the case from what you've seen from there, and even on even on St. Paul campus, I know we looked around, and I haven't seen as much either. Yeah. Uh, you know, in in uh, in terms of that. Yep, David. You know that all gets back to getting out there and scouting the fields. There's a lot of variability out there this year. Yeah. Um, if I can take just a, a couple seconds here, I sure. also want to mention that in talking with Angie Peltier from from Crookston, she mentioned uh, there's quite a bit of a green clover worm larvae in some fields. So that might be something people want to start paying attention to in some areas. These are small green caterpillars. Sounded like they're in their uh, early instars, very young caterpillars yet. But as they get bigger, their consumption of leaf area can really increase. So these are defoliating insects. We've also got grasshoppers out there in pretty high numbers in some areas. So just uh, another reminder, something else to be looking for when you're scouting and uh, keep the thresholds in mind for this time of year. Reproductive stage soybean in Minnesota, we're still using the defoliation threshold of 20%. So look at, look at multiple plants across the field, some leaves from the top, middle and bottom of the plants, average all those levels of defoliation. And then if that field-wide average is above 20%, uh, that's where we would recommend starting to line up an insecticide application. Some folks might be hearing about some lower thresholds, you know, 10 to 15% in the um, uh, reproductive growth stages of soybean. Um, but in Minnesota, we're, we're still at the University of Minnesota, still um, recommending the 20% threshold. Okay, great, great. Well, we've been through a lot of, uh, of communication here this morning on some important issues, both weeds and insects. Uh, Tom, um, you've uh, had a, a little bit of a break there. Any last thoughts that you have on, from a weed science perspective that we did not address uh, that we should mention here as we close? Um, no, I don't have anything else, Dave, but thanks for asking. Yes. <laughs> well, we, we certainly have that and we'll have reports and, and so forth coming out and 
and and Bob, I know that we have some other um, events coming up here with uh, Bruce Potter and Lamberton in uh, in the end of August here uh, on corn rootworm. Our new corn uh, uh, insect specialist Faye is is on staff now. there, and we're also going to have another event probably at the Rosemont area on uh, September seventh. So we'll watch watch for that for a few days. Dr. Um, Dean Melvick and uh, Faye and, and Bruce a, as well. So we'll have a have an opportunity to um, address address those uh, as as well. And I'll just I'll put a plug in for the crop news. A um, couple of articles that you've been involved with, uh, Bob and, and other Bruce and other people have talked about soybean aphids, uh, spider mites. So uh, if you didn't pick up everything that we're talking about here, I'll refer back to University of Minnesota crop news. And and finally, uh, Tom, I'll put in a shameless plug for um, an article that you and I were involved with in the Crops and Soils magazine on herbicide resistance. So um, you can get it online or uh, if you get the magazine, um, a certified crop advisor or whatever, uh, take a look at the uh, most recent edition of uh, Crops and Soils. And it gives a good overview here of, of what we're dealing with in the upper Midwest uh, with that. So uh, at this point, I have another question here. I'm going to get, segue back over to Dean Melvick because it's more of a disease one. <laughs> and uh, we'll save uh, save Bob of, of being a plant pathologist here this morning um, uh, with that. But we want to uh, thank both of you uh, for taking the time out of your schedule uh, to be a, a part of the uh, program again. And so we'd like to also just to capsulize here, the, the sessions were brought to you by University of Minnesota Extension, University of Minnesota uh, uh, Farm Families, Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council, along with uh, the Minnesota Corn Research and Promotion Council. Thanks for your, again for your time and thank you for attending.